Hey guys, welcome to the Sabbath School Commentary for 2020. My name is Lawson Walters, um, and I've been asked by the Sabbath School Department here in North New South Wales to record uh, a commentary on this week's Sabbath School lesson, which is specifically about the topic of Daniel chapter 7. We're just going to get into it, do a Bible study of Daniel chapter 7, um, look at some things that you could talk about in your Sabbath school class, and uh, yeah, just do our best uh, in unpacking this really, really awesome chapter of the Bible um, that is incredibly important to the book of Daniel. So some things to note about Daniel chapter 7 specifically is that this is the first book that we come to after, I guess, a chronological succession of events. Um, from Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 6 is basically this this chronological story about Daniel's life. Um, you know, we see in Daniel chapter 2, the that's the first taste of prophecy that we get. But the reason it's mentioned there in chapter 2 is that because that's through Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but then up to chapter 6, we see you know, the order of, of Daniel's life, the real story, the big highlights, you know, as we've been reading in the in the previous week's lesson, Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel in the lion's den is where it kind of comes to an end from there, at least until we get into chapters 11 and 12, where we pick up the story again. But then we come to Daniel chapter 7, and this is the, the transition from the chronological story-based books of, you know, the book of Daniel into the specific Bible prophecy-based books. And this is, you know, you know, relatively normal in Hebrew literature, is that they would order things rather than chronologically, they would order things topically. So we take a little bit of a chronological step back in time from, you know, the time of, uh, you know, Darius the Mede in chapter 6, uh, when Daniel and the Lion's Den happens, right back to the first year of Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon. And essentially, what this book is all about, like it opens with, you know, one introductory verse, sorry, this chapter, it opens with one introductory verse in the first year of King Belshazzar, uh, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and the visions of his head while on his bed. Um, then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. And that's it. That is all the context. That is all the information we get about, you know, the hist historical context of this dream, what's going on. Really, it just kind of jumps into the prophecy. And that's because that's what these particular chapters are all about. In terms of, uh, you know, presenting this in Sabbath school, and I guess the way that the Sabbath school has been going this week, the Sabbath school this week focuses um, a fair bit on the judgment aspect of this chapter. There's two, there's two big pervasive themes in this chapter. One is the Antichrist. Um, and I think what takes a, a, you know, a second, you know, a backseat to that is the judgment scene that we see. Um, the judgment will be so much more um, prolific, so much more understandable, and so much more to the forefront in Daniel chapter 8. So I wanted to leave that um, to the Sabbath school commentary for next week and more just get in and talk about the um, the Antichrist itself, as this is really at the heart of this chapter, Daniel chapter 7. It's really, you know, it's the first big mention that we see of the Antichrist. It's, you know, one of the you know, first real apocalyptic prophecies that we find um, in the Bible in this amount of detail. Um, it's an incredibly, yeah, 
insightful prophecy, um, just really, really awesome stuff. And how I wanted to go about this to, I guess, you know, commentate and, and help those teaching a Sabbath school on this topic is to point out, I guess, the most simple and easy way to approach this study. It's a big topic, the Antichrist. And I wanted to come at it from the perspective of, you know, identifying the Antichrist in the way of just looking at the characteristics that the Bible gives, that specifically Daniel chapter 7 gives to identify uh, to identify the Antichrist. If this chapter does one thing for the broader context of Bible prophecy, it gives us so many identifying characteristics that become more relevant as we read the book of Daniel, but then even more so as we get into the book of Revelation, and specifically Revelation 13, which is, a, I, I guess, a parallel chapter to this about the Antichrist. Um, but let's just jump in. I think the first step that we need to take in identifying the Antichrist is identifying um, the, you know, the four beasts that come before it. If you know the flow of this chapter, if you've been following the uh, the Sabbath school up to this point, we start by looking at four beasts. Um, in verse 4, the Bible says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and, had a, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Um, and they said to it, uh, thus arise and devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another beast like a leopard, which had on its back four wings like a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Um, and then it continues on into the fourth beast, which says, uh, you know, after this, I saw in my night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, had hu um, huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts and it had um, that were before it, and it had ten horns. Then after that, it gets into the Antichrist and specifically the little horn. Before we go there, we just need to really work with what we're given here um, as identifying characteristics um, and get into, okay, you know, who are these four beasts? What's going on here? Um, and, you know, that will give us a context in which we can identify the Antichrist. Luckily, one really awesome tool uh, that Bible prophecy gives us to kind of make a way for ourselves, to kind of find ourselves uh, is actually begun right here in Daniel chapter 7, and that's called the, 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 the tool or the idea of repeat and enlarge. So in Daniel chapter 2, we see a number of kingdoms um, represented by metals, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then, you know, the eventual um, division of Rome is identified as, as gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay. Um, here we open up in Daniel chapter 7 and we start immediately with four beasts. So that can give us some kind of um, idea of maybe who these people are. But then the Bible is just so unequivocally clear as to what these beasts represent, what the identifying characteristics mean. And if we just go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, it's so clear. The Bible says, those great beasts, which are four, 
are four kings which arise out of the earth. So we just get so clearly here this picture that these four beasts, we were just told so clearly, these four beasts are four kings. And we're going to see as we study through, it's it's mainly talking about kingdoms here. That's that's what it's most uh, that's what it's referring to. Um, but yeah, straight away we're given okay, these four beasts are four kingdoms. Now, if we start to use um, the rest of the identifying characteristics, we can get an idea of who uh, who these kingdoms are. We're going to start with the first kingdom, uh, the kingdom uh, of the lion. It talks about this lion um, as a symbol of a kingdom. It has wings and it, um, it then goes through this transformation of having a man's heart given to it. And very clearly, if we go, you know, from understanding Daniel chapter 2 um, and also just looking at these characteristics, we can see very clearly that this is a representation of the empire of Babylon that existed from 605 to 538 BC. How can we know that from the symbols? Well, firstly, it's given the symbol of the lion, which was the most prolific symbol used by the Babylonians themselves to describe themselves. Um, if you look at the Ishtar gates um, that have been reassembled in Germany, which were the original ones from Babylon, um, the symbol of the lion is by far the most prolific. As well, in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 43 and 44, it talks about, Jeremiah describes the king of Babylon as being like a lion. Um, and again, going on the principle of repeat and large from Daniel chapter 2, yes, we can say clearly this is Babylon. Now, the next beast is represented as a bear having uh, being raised up on one side, having three ribs in its mouth. And we can go again by, you know, the idea of repeat and enlarge and, you know, just looking at some of these symbols and we can say, hey, this is the Medes and the Persians. How can we say that? Well, firstly, um, this uh, this bear is um, shown as being a lopsided bear, having one side raised up. Um, and we can look at the Medo-Persian government itself. It was a coalition government. Um, the Persians were much stronger than the Medes, and we can come to a conclusion from that. Okay, this is um, what it must be representing. It then says it has three ribs in its mouth. We're seeing here nations that are described as kingdoms, and if a nation has three ribs in its mouth, it's been, I guess you can come to the conclusion quite easily that this nation has been devouring kingdoms. And, and we see specifically with Medo-Persia the three empires that it actually took down to become the empire of the world that it was, was Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. So it just kind of perfectly lines up here, um, makes lots of sense straight away. We then go to the next kingdom, which I think is just incredible in the imagery it uses. Um, this kingdom of the leopard, it's described as a leopard having four wings and four heads. Um this is really awesome. We can use by, you know, the principle of repeat and enlarge, looking at Daniel chapter 2, we can say, okay, well, this must be the kingdom of Greece. But how do the identifying characteristics, um, I guess, uh, concur with that? Well, if we just look at this beast, this is so, so, so awesome. Um, having four heads and four wings, you know, um, the leopard, firstly, is you know regarded as a fast beast. It's one of the, you know the quickest, um, quickest moving animals on earth. And if we look at the conquering that Greece did under Alexander the Great, um, you know it was one of the fastest nations to, I guess, become the world empire. Um, I think in seven years they marched from Greece to India, taking everything along the way. Alexander the Great was extremely successful as at a very young age. Um, and that's, I guess, demonstrated here by the leopard. And then we see that it has four 
heads. Well, one of the most amazing things that um, that's an incredible description of what happened uh, at the end of Alexander the Great's life. He's laying there on his deathbed. He has his four generals standing above him, uh, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. And he says to them, is his dying wish is that they would take the kingdom and give it to the strongest and continue it is on. He breathes his last breath. He passes away. Um, and immediately the Greek Empire is split into four um, because obviously those four generals didn't want to fight each other for the kingdom. Rather, they said, okay, look, we'll just be the next kings. And um, the Greek Empire was split into four, which is represented here by the leopard having four heads. Now we continue on to the fourth beast. It's described as this great and terrible dragon uh, that devours all, that that basically destroys all, becomes this great empire, and then has ten horns on its head. We'll get into what exactly that means before we just look at this beast itself. If we go by the principle of repeat and enlarge from Daniel 2, we can say, oh, hey, that's the kingdom of Rome. Um, but if we look at the beast and the identifying characteristics it gives, how can we know that? Well, firstly, um, it's just straight up linked back to Daniel chapter 2, as it says it has, you know, huge iron teeth and iron talons. Um, it's ex It describes it as exceedingly terrible um, and dreadful, which, you know, the Roman Empire was much bigger and much more powerful than the empires that came before it. Um, and then, as it gives the identifying characteristics of having... 10 horns, we know that the uh, Roman Empire in 476 AD was then split into 10 nations. So we can just say clearly it gives us a time, it gives us a place. Um, it's like, hey, this is exactly who it is. It's the kingdom of Rome. But now we get into the topic of Antichrist, a good um, 12, 13 minutes into uh, <laughs> our Sabbath school commentary right here. And this is now where we get into our identifying characteristics of the Antichrist. Um, and I think I'll, I'll name uh, the Antichrist, but I don't know, maybe maybe I'll just put the identifying characteristics and leave that to you guys. Um, I'm sure it, you know, it gets into the Sabbath school about who exactly the, the little horn and the Antichrist is, but something awesome, something really powerful you can do when giving this Bible studies, you just give people the identifying characteristics. When they hear them, it's so compelling from the Bible and it's so clear who uh, the Antichrist, the little horn is, that people often give the answer before you even tell them. So let's start with a couple of identifying characteristics of the little horn power of the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy. Starting in verse 8, after the description is given about the great, uh, the fourth beast, the great exceedingly terrible beast, it says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns uh, were plucked out by the roots. And there in the horn were the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So the first clue is that it arises among the ten horns. Who are the ten horns? We said before, that's the ten nations uh, that came out of the Roman Empire, the initial ten nations of Europe. And it says that this little horn comes up among them. So this immediately gives us a place, a geographical location. It must come up amongst the ten nations of Western Europe. But it then says um, it comes up and it plucks three kingdoms out by the roots. So now that we have a place... Um, of among the 10 nations of Europe. We also get a time from that being that the 10 nations of Europe existed from 476 AD. We know that by 
the time of 538 AD, only seven nations were left. It was actually the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals um, that were destroyed in that time period from 476 to 538. And this power will also have a hand in destroying um, in destroying those nations. So we get here a time of being between 476 and 538 and a geographical location in Western Europe. So there, that you know, that's going to really help us um, narrow down who exactly the little horn is. We continue on with some more characteristics. It says that it's it has a mouth speaking pompous words and it has eyes like the eyes of a man. Firstly, we'll just denote it says eyes like the eyes of a man. Um, you know, this is very clear that basically, you know, this little horn at its head, you know, it's got a man ruling it, which is, you know, kind of the standard if we look, uh, you know, across history. But it's just good to know that, oh, this is something that, you know, it's, it was ruled by a man specifically. But then it says it has a mouth speaking pompous words. Um, if we look at the definition um, of the words uh, of the word pompous here in uh, Daniel chapter seven and verse eight, this connects it uh, with a number of other verses in the Bible, specifically in Revelation chapter thirteen and verse five, where it says it talks great things, and if you read in the KJV, it says great things um, against the Most High. A definition that we have of that, if we get into you know the Hebrew, um, and if we look in Revelation chapter thirteen and verse five. It says that these grace were great words are specifically blasphemies. So this is again another identifying characteristic of the Antichrist that it will be speaking blasphemies. And how exactly is it speaking blasphemies? Is it uh, you know what is the biblical definition of blasphemies? Well, if we go to Mark chapter two, we see very clearly they accuse Jesus of blaspheming. And how does Jesus blaspheme? Well, firstly, he claims to be God, and he um, claims to have the power and the ability to forgive. Since so there we have a definition of blasphemy. So this nation, it'll be a little bit, you know, it's it's not just a regular nation. Um, it's not just a regular kind of, um, you know, power, but it itself will claim to be God, um, and have the power to forgive sins, which makes sense because it calls, you know, it's called in the Bible the Antichrist. I think something that a lot of people can get confused on with the Antichrist is that, um, you know, they look at the Antichrist power and they're like they're looking for something that is specifically opposed to God. They're like, oh, something really satanic. Uh, but no, the word antichrist means in place of Christ. This is a power that would be um, saying that it itself is Christ. Also, something that I mentioned there that I think I need to make a bit more of a point out of is that, look, this is not an individual. It's called a nation here. And how do we know that? In the Bible, it says that these horns... Um, in Daniel chapter 7, it says the 10 horns that were on its head um, and the other horn that came up um, were kingdoms. Um, so we know that this is not an individual, but a nation. But as we can see, it's a nation that arises between 476 and 538 AD in Western Europe um, that has a man at its head and it speaks blasphemies. It claims to be God. All right, continuing on with the identifying characteristics, it would persecute God's People. This is something that's really interesting if, as we um, continue to read 
in uh, Daniel chapter 7, if we skip over to the explanation of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21, the Bible says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Something that this little horn, this antichrist power really opposes, this religious liberty. Um, and also, you know, true worship. So if we just look at a power in, um, you know, that came up during that time that this antichrist power who has existed that did this specific thing that persecuted God's people and anyone who was following, uh, you know, God in, you know, in truth and in spirit. If we look for a power who was doing that, we will, uh, you know, that is another, again, another attribute of the little horn. Uh, we're continuing on with the identifying characteristics. If we continue to read verse 23, this kind of highlights some of the things we've already been talking about. It says, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, uh, which shall be different from the other kingdoms. It shall dev um, devour the whole earth and trample it and break it in pieces, the ten horns of ten kingdoms, um, who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. He shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and laws. Now, this is another identifying characteristic of this Antichrist power, that it thinks to have the ability to change times and laws. Now, something interesting we're actually discussing uh, at the time of recording this on radio is that if you're a nation and you want to change times and laws, you can. Uh, you know, here in Australia, we have a number of new laws that are made every day, a number of laws that are changed every day. Um, and basically, laws are something that are subject to those ruling or leading a nation. We have to ask the question then, if this uh, power, it thinks to change times and laws, um, especially in the context that it gives here, it says it shall persecute the saints of the Most High in verse 25, and then it says it shall intend to change times and laws, but it doesn't have the ability to. Uh, which times and laws is it intending to change? Well, it would suggest, uh, if we read the text, that those times and laws don't have the ability to, do, to be changed. That's why it's intending to change them. Um, and which times and laws do not have the ability to be changed by any power on the earth? Of course, we're talking about God's times and laws. So this is a kingdom and nation that will be intending to change God's times and God's laws. Now, um, I guess another thing to really... Uh, you know, that could be implicated as we've been re reading here, but I just want to make a point out of again. It says that this nation is a, it says that this horn, uh, which is a symbol of this nation, is a little horn. So we know that this is a little kingdom. This isn't some huge, massive, amazing, you know, like I expansive in terms of land. Um, we know that this is a little kingdom, but the Bible says specifically that this kingdom has incredible power to persecute, to overcome kingdoms. So not only this is a little horn, but this is incredibly powerful kingdom. If you read this in the KJV, uh, it says that its look was more stout than its fellows, than, uh, you know, the horns that it was among. Although it was a little kingdom, it was incredibly powerful. And now finally, the last characteristic that we want to give to this little horn is the time that it gives um, for this little horn's rulership. In verse 25, it says, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, a times time, a time times and a half a time, it's a bit of a tongue twister, is a specific reference to, basically, you know, people read this, they're like, man, how can I understand that at all? Time times and half a time. This is a reference, you know, the only way we would understand this 
is by looking into how um, Hebrew people denote time, uh, how they speak about time. Uh, you can read in multiple places in the Bible that um, a time is basically a reference to a year. That's how um, Hebrew people uh, dealt with time. When they talked about it, they would say a time, and that would be a reference to a year. So we have here a time, and then times, and then half a time. So it's about a time singular, then times plural, and then half a times. Um, we can come easily to the conclusion that this is a reference to three and a half years. People could say, oh, well, how could you say, you know, that it just says times plural? How can we know that that's... Um, two years? How can we know that that's three years? How can we know that that's 10 years? Well, I think, you know, if the biblical writer was, you know, if the writer here, Daniel, if he was trying to really um, specify this as any more than two years, he would write, you know, three times or four times, but no, he just says a time, a reference to a year, times, a plural for, you know, a plural reference to two years, and then half a time, which would be half a year. So you get this idea of three and a half years. So then are we saying that this nation, this little horn, Antichrist power only rules for three and a half years? Um, well, no, actually, in the Bible, we get this principle also from Bible prophecy, which is seen very prolifically here, of a day for a year. Basically, uh, we see this in Ezekiel 4, 6, is where we get the initial principle, and then it's applied here in Daniel chapter 7. Basically, where one day in Bible prophecy, or the reference to a day of Bible prophecy is a year in in real time, especially, you know, in the context of apocalyptic prophecy, which this is. So then if we take that times, times, and half a time, and we put, you know, slap a day for a year on it, how many days are in um, three and a half years? Well, specifically 1,260 days. And now if we put a day for a year on that, we will see that that rounds out to 1,260 years. So this little horn, Antichrist power, will have 1,260 years to uh, essentially do what it's described to be doing here to persecute the saints of the Most High, to intend to change times and laws. Now, from 538 AD, we know that that little horn power comes into full effect. It's when, it, you know, it's chucked out, um, you know, three of those, you know, three of the original 10 nations of Europe. And from that point, it starts to persecute to be the power um, that it's describing here in Daniel chapter 7. Now then, do we then, like after 1,260 years, which is a time period that brings us all the way into modern history, if we take it from 538 AD, that brings us all the way to 1798 AD, do we then say, okay, well, uh, you know, from 538 to 1798, that's when the little horn will rule, and then it will have no other implication on prophecy or history or anything after that. Well, the final thing I want to leave you with here is the amazing description that the Bible gives um, in reference to the end of this time period in Revelation chapter 13. I'm just turning there now. But yeah, Revelation chapter 13, it gives us, uh, you know, I guess the parallel of this chapter talks all about the Antichrist, you know, this beast nation that would be persecuting God's people, that would be putting itself in, in the place of Christ. Um, and as we read here in Revelation chapter 13, we come down to verse 3. It says, it talks about this beast. It talks about, you know, and having the 10 crowns um, on, 10, on 10 horns, speaking blasphemies and whatnot. And then it says in verse 3, And I saw one of its heads as if it was mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled 
and then followed the beast. So we get a kind of chronological timeline here from 538 AD. Um, this horn starts ruling with full effect of persecuting people and um, speaking blasphemies, intending to change times and laws. Then at the end of that time period, that brings us down to 1798, around that time it would receive a deadly wound, which would uh, thwart, uh, for at least a small period of time, it would thwart its actions, its authority would be taken away. But immediately after that, uh, the Bible says its wound, its deadly wound was healed, and the whole world marveled at that, and it continued to rule. So what we see here basically is that it receives a deadly wound, it loses its authority for a time, but then its wound heals, and it continues on. And, you know, right into the end times, right into when Jesus comes back and we see going back to Revelation chapter 7, it rules throughout all the way until the time of the judgment where it is then judged and destroyed. That is all the identifying characteristics of the Antichrist power of uh Daniel chapter 7. Now I want to implore you guys to read through your Sabbath school. Um, you'll get a lot of answers to these identifying characteristics. Also, you know, using resources. But I'm sure if you present this in your Sabbath school, I'm sure like those who are listening now, you already have an idea of who I'm talking about. Maybe if you've never even heard this before. But yeah, presenting that in your Sabbath school would be powerful, you know, a powerful uh, study and that people will respond and say, hey, I know exactly who that is. Anyway, this has been Lawson. I hope this has been a, a, a good lesson. Um, and yeah, praise the Lord for your efforts to, yeah, to take Sabbath school to be a leader. And uh, yeah, this has been the Sabbath school commentary. Tune in next week to whoever's presenting and they will be giving a, a comprehensive Sabbath school commentary on Daniel chapter 8.